This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. be for halloween andrew uh Susanna and i talked about going as bob's burgers characters that's, that's right so i was thinking about bob and she was thinking about louise but it's one of those costumes where you gotta be careful about making out with each other because <laughs> louise is a daughter character i don't know how many of you have seen bob's burgers listeners but it's fraught is what i'm saying <laughs> Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. And my name is Andrew. And uh, similar to yours, Andrew, I have some friends who are going to be the like D-Day picture. Is it D-Day? Is it VJ Day? It's not D-Day. People Ooh, aren't geez. celebrating in Times Square because of D-Day. <laughs> I messed that one up bad. No, I, thought that, I thought that was V-E Day. Oh, but... okay. The one where the guy made out with the girl in the street. Yeah, that's what they're going to be, which probably which means it's it's the opposite of your problem is their costume now. Depends. They have to be making out. <laughs> it's the mistletoe. Otherwise, they're just like otherwise it's just a sailor and a lady. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Laura and I are probably going to go as Monsters, Inc. Like I'm going to be Mike Wazowski. You're going to be the factory. Yes, I'm going to be and a factory. She's going to be a screen. And tank. She's going to be doors. Um, All right. <laughs> she's going to be Boo. Uh, the kid, and I'm going to be mm-hmm. Mike Wazowski. Also mm-hmm. weird, I think. We have to be careful about makeout scenarios there. Yeah, because everybody like Halloween is the sexiest holiday, so you're all just making out all the time. I was thinking about going as sexy Mike Wazowski, but <laughs> <laughs> I clearly can't even keep it together long enough to think about that So, yeah, like conceptually, I can't. I have no suggestions to help you, like with your sexy Mike Wazowski costume, because he's just a, like a ball. He's a little ball. He's a naked ball. He's already yeah, but he's... as sexy as he could be. <laughs> he could. He's got legs. He could wear like a thong, I guess. I guess, but it would just be. It would just look funny on him. Cause it'd be like up around his eye or something. Like I don't. I don't. Know. Are you saying that know. some sexy costumes aren't just inherently funny? Like sexy Luigi is inherently funny. Why do you want to deny Luigi his his sexuality? I'm not denying it. I'm just saying that he's a pretty goofy dude. And Luigi is a sexual being, Craig. <laughs> he will not he be needs. contained. Yeah. Okay. Can just, can't. The sexy Luigi costume would just be overalls without the shirt underneath, I think. How are, how are you to know that you are Luigi? Do you still wear the hat? With a hat. You wear okay, the hat still. Okay. Always the hat. Always the hat. And you have Even to be. You didn't tall. have anything else on. You have to be taller than other people. Yeah, relatively tall, and plus the mustache. I mean, that mustache is pretty porny anyway. So <laughs> that's true. I don't know many sexy plumbers. Yeah, I don't know many well, plumbers at all. You don't know enough plumbers. All right, so I think if we keep trying to be funny like this, we're going to get more bad iTunes reviews. So, <laughs> oh, what is this podcast about? It's about uh, books, and each week one of us reads a book. And the other one usually doesn't, and we talk about it on air uh, to kind of help the listener 
who may or may not have read that book also know what it's about. Uh, the <laughs> point is that we don't really know about these books, but that we probably should. So that's how we're approaching. That's why we read them. That's why we read them. And this and month, this is the, yeah, yeah, go this ahead. Is the, four, the fourth and last of our spooktacular, spooktober, spooky shows. Yes. About spooky books. Yes. Um, so, so far we've read Bunicula, which is about a bunny who eats vegetable juice. Uh, the Ghost Train, which is a choose your own adventure book in which we ran into neither ghosts nor trains. Uh, the Amityville Horror, which was last week, and then this week, Craig, what did you read? I read Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. Uh, let's, what do you know about Daphne du Maurier? Because that's something we do on this podcast, too, is we talk about the authors. So you're going to learn something, whether you like it or whether not. Whether you like it or not. I don't Ugh. know that Daphne's too spooky in her own right. Uh, she did live into her 80s. I don't know if... I mean, she could be a ghost now. If, well, she's... yeah. And if old people are spooky to you, then she Sometimes. did make it into her 80s. Their skin is all... Like, I don't even like seeing my own veins under, like, my own skin. Old people have, like, that paper skin. You can, like, see everything that's going... It's like, uh, like, if you have a transparent thing on an overhead projector, you can just, like, see everything. Yeah, old people are basically transparencies on projectors from math class. That's mm-hmm. exactly right. They're all like slim, good bodies. Stop you can it. just oh. see everything that's going on in there. Inside Out Kid? Is that- <laughs> yeah, oh no. <laughs> Inside Out Boy. Inside Out Boy, you hit 65. Swung, and then so, you swing yeah. over the bar of the swing set. Like, holy wow. I have not thought of Inside Out Boy. <laughs> yeah, in America, you hit 65 and they send you over the bar on the swing set, and your whole mm-hmm. body turns inside out and they make you retire. That's Thanks, how- Stick Stickly, for the. <laughs> Stick stickly in- care and his death panels. <laughs> so back to Daphne de Maurier. She was a British lady uh, who was born in 1907. She was the granddaughter of George de Maurier, who is a pretty cool dude. He was a punch uh, comic artist, like the comic, like Punch and Judy comic punch. Okay. Uh, he also created the character of Sven Gali. Do you read about this, Andrew? No, ever heard I mean, of... I, 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 I read about it in passing. I kind of know who Svengali like, is. Like, Svengali is now this kind of trope of someone who seduces and dominates an artistic person. Like, someone okay. who takes advantage of, like, a creative woman, usually, um, and kind of holds them as a pawn. It's actually Svengali. The Svengali defense is a legal tactic that purports that the, the defendant was a pawn in the scheme of a greater criminal mastermind okay cool i think it's pretty cool uh and then her dad was uh her dad gerald was an actor actor manager which meant that he ran his own company Mm -hmm. um so she was one of three daughters i believe the second of three and uh they were pretty tight and had like their own code and all sorts of stuff um they had like special words that they used uh for being like observant like you were beady or if someone's attractive you are a menace so if you're like <laughs> if someone is attractive to you they are menacing you basically mm-hmm. which is, I think sure. is pretty cool that uh, makes sense and that seems to there's a pretty good actually gawker review of books article that uh, margaret h willison sent our way that's it's not a thing I knew existed. The Gawker review of books. The Gawker review books. Now that those words don't sound like they go together. <laughs> I know. Um, that uh, says that De, De Maria kind of took that menace 
idea into the rest of her work, this kind of romantic thriller that is half gothic thriller, half sensation novel. Um, and Damari didn't really like the term romantic novel, so that's kind of why we don't necessarily use that. What else did you find about Damari, Andrew? Um, I know she's written some some fairly spooky works. Uh, a lot of uh, three of her works were uh, adapted by Alfred Hitchcock into movies. Correct. It was it was Rebecca, uh, which is for the record the only one that I think she liked. Yes. <laughs> and then uh, the birds and uh, what was the third one? Uh, Jamaica Inn. Did he make a Jamaica Inn film? Uh, I believe that is what it is we can edit this out if i can't vamp well enough while you type yeah it was jamaica Inn. great and then there was there was a film treatment of don't look now which was by uh, nicholas rague or rogue Mm -hmm. r-o-e-g okay uh she liked that one too but yeah the only hitchcock one she liked was rebecca um yeah and she's i think her short stories are probably some of the most like known of Hmm. her works so yeah, the bird, the birds is a big one. Uh, actually, in 2011, a fan of hers named Anne Wilmore tracked down and published some pretty obscure, like early Du Maurier stories, stuff that she wrote when she was around 21. Okay. Um, the one of those that people paid the most attention to, and one that I kind of want to read, is called The Doll, which is about a life-size mechanical male sex doll. Whoa. Uh, this collection of stories also mentions Happy Valley, which is apparently a location that was later reused in Rebecca. Yes. Um, and she's also a Dane commander of the Order of the British Empire, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So in 1932, she married Frederick uh, Browning, uh, whose nickname was Boy or Tommy Boy, I guess. Boy. Boy. Cha boy. Uh, <laughs> he was uh, a major in the Royal Army, and later a lieutenant general. And she actually wrote Rebecca while she was at, like, while he was stationed in Egypt, and she hated being in Egypt with him, apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and have you heard, have you read about Egypt? It sounds like it's just pyramids and sand and mummies. I read that Anne Rice book. I know, <laughs> I know what's in Egypt. Yeah, okay. That's, no, I don't know anything else about Egypt. I can't fight you there. That might be what it is. I don't it's really all know. It's all just wall-to-wall mummies. Wall- <laughs> Pyramids made of mummies mm-hmm. in Egypt. Um, and they lived uh, in a house called Menabili, which is they rented from you know some other rich British people. And they lived there for a good long time. And that is kind of the inspiration for the big estate, Manderley, at which Rebecca is set. Okay. Uh, the other... Th- thing to know about de Maurier's marriage is that it was not um it was complicated let's say there was some stepping out i believe on both sides uh later in his life browning uh took to heavy drinking though after you know he passed she kind of was very vocal about the fact that she had his back and that they were you know they were okay all things mm-hmm. considered um she did have some uh, lesbian affairs, even though she reportedly did not like that word. Yeah, and I think her her uh, children have kind of denied that aspect of her character, I think, right? I guess, even though the family released like a bunch of letters to a biographer, Margaret Forster, uh, where she talked about kind of having these two different personalities, one that was like the traditional wife, mother, and one that was this like, kind of male personality of a lover 
that she saw as the source of like her creative energies and seems to be at the root of her uh, affairs with Gertrude Lawrence and her infatuation with Ellen Doubleday. Um, so I I think the I don't know the the Lawrence stuff seems pretty reliable. Whether yeah, or not. That, that like that I find that I find the the fact that she used like male and female mm-hmm. pronouns for her different personalities interesting because it's like like I wonder how that would have manifested in an atmosphere that was more like socially accepting of oh totally. Of people who who like of like more with more fluid like gender norms and and everything like if it went beyond like homosexuality into like transgendered stuff or like what the what the deal was you know well reportedly her her father hated uh gay gay people and she may I have... think in like eighteen the late eighteen hundreds you could just assume that most white well... dudes hated homosexuals <laughs> yeah but that her her own kind of dislike of the of the term lesbian and and it was probably like internalized homophobia from her father is kind of what yeah, the yeah, scholarship possibly. says um mm-hmm. and to to your point then uh she said on a couple of occasions that she thought her father would have preferred a boy and how that would have affected her career you know sure. she was certainly aware of that herself and that that kind of duality does play into this book mm-hmm. um, and then the the last thing i wanted to get you before we get to the book because yeah. i know you've you've said a couple times to me that that it, there's a lot to cover there and is, probably yeah. not going to get to all of it um there are some accusations oh, that yeah. she plagiarized um, at least like the broad structure of this book, like the 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 general plot and a few of the individual episodes. Um, the person who she's accused of plagiarizing from is a uh, Carolina Nabucco, sure. uh, a Brazilian author who wrote a book called The Successor. Yes. Um, and there's a there's a uh, 2002 New York Times article that's actually mostly about Life of Pi and how that book also huh. is said to have been kind of imported from another work in like a foreign language or not not a foreign language but like a a language from another market where most people reading english books would not like necessarily be chopping for fiction yeah well that's you see that kind of happen with the um the booker prizes and other international fiction prizes where they'll be awarded to these authors that you know the english speaking audience has never heard of and with with that in mind, you look at all sorts of other books that get acclaim and wonder, like, well, who's that person reading? Did they yeah. read some book that no one's ever heard of? And mm-hmm. then they wrote a book that everyone then heard of later? Um, yeah. So, yeah, but I think there's something about Nabucco where later someone accused them of plagiarizing a different book. Uh, and also the author Frank Baker uh, said that he thought Du Maurier plagiarized his novel a the birds for her mm-hmm. short story, um, even though he decided not to sue United Artists because yeah, and that wasn't going to work out. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, this this raises for me interesting questions about like what the definition of plagiarism is, right? Like, like I think that when you're talking about academic plagiarism, which is the way that most of us are acquainted like, with like, that term, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Um, you're you're thinking of like actually copying and pasting. Or like directly lifting passages out of other published works and and presenting them as your own, right? Yes. Where this seems to say, okay, you use the same plot elements, so therefore you're plagiarizing. And like, what's what's the line between plagiarism and homage? And who like, what is your viewpoint on that? Based on 
based on whether you're the person who's who's uh, plagiarizing or the person who has been plagiarized. I don't know. Like the word plagiarism carries a lot of weight that I feel like it's. It, I feel I, I'm really reticent to throw it around unless you can actually like control F and find the identical passages in both works. You know. Yeah, I think in this instance and the thing that where it comes up today a lot is if that person could still derive benefit from their work that you are purportedly plagiarizing, that's where it becomes like a sticky situation, right? It's not like, oh, I ripped off this book from 100 years ago and passed it off as mine. That's fine, I guess. Like, it's lazy. It? Well, it's lazy <laughs> on my part. And if anybody figures it out, then I'm screwed. But I'm not, like, taking someone's money, right? That's an interesting place to draw the line i guess like if i if i just decided okay this this book is called Bobby dick by andrew cunningham uh-huh. and it's about it's about a red whale mm-hmm. and a, and captain spahab who is on its who's <laughs> oh. on its who's on its tail all the time like is that plagiarism i would say probably yeah but like but how is that different <laughs> from pride and prejudice and zombies i don't know like I haven't read Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, so... If you're doing it to be lazy, then I don't think it's plagiarism. I think it's just bad. If you're doing I think it that's, to I comment think on the original... Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, I think, is more like you get into fair use slash parody. Yeah. And not just outright stripping stripping someone else's text and presenting it as your own text. Yeah, there's a whole debate that's going on in the theater community about the, these upcoming Shakespeare translations that doesn't really pertain to this podcast, but there's... Uh, not plagiarism there, but it's like, what is a play? Like when you start changing words from someone else's work, is it still that person's work? It is. is I mean, it is a little bit weird to be translating something from English to modern English. I, we should do a whole bonus episode about this. Right. Yeah. I mean, my, my short, the short version is that like anything that can make those plays more readable and digestible for modern audiences while also retaining what makes them notable in the first place is good, but then you're going to get into all kinds of arguments about what makes them notable in the first I place. Would ar- so. Yes, I would argue that the language makes them noticeable because some of those plots are garbage. Yeah, they really are. <laughs> or at least just hot mess garbage. Like, they could be fun, but they are messy. Let's go to a break and then come back and talk about the real book that we're talking about this week, huh? Yeah. Sounds good. Andrew, my razor's really old. Is it? It's pretty gross. How old is it? It's older than Charles Nelson Riley, who is the first person I think of when I think of jokes structured in that way. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do about it? Uh, I'm not going to use my old blade because uh, it hurts. And I'm not going to spend $20 to buy new ones at the store. I think I'm going to use dollarshaveclub.com. DollarShaveClub.com, tell me more. Well, they revolutionized the way I shave because I can get a fresh blade whenever I want, and they'll send like a whole sleeve of these razors for just a few bucks. Uh, and I have heard that they are so good that millions of guys have joined up, and probably gals. Andrew, is that true? I know that you've tried them out. They're pretty good. You can get three razors. One's the Humble Twin for a buck a month plus $2 shipping. One's the 4X, which is the one that I've chosen. Uh, and then the last one for $9 a month and free shipping is the Executive, Ooh. which has six blades. And I was just, uh, it was a little too intimidated. It was my first time with Dollar Shave Club. <laughs> and I felt like I needed something just like a little less imposing. That's okay. 
I think that you can upgrade uh, to shaving with a fresh blade whenever you want. And it's only, as you said, it's one third of the price, right? How often do they send you razors? Whenever you want? Uh, once a month or whenever you want. That's a so, great deal. <laughs> they assume that you replace them at like a roughly weekly clip. But if you replace them less often than that, you can set up whatever schedule you want. Um, if you go to dollarshaveclub.com slash overdue, you can learn more. Yes, you should join Andrew and join the millions of others who figured out the smarter way to shave. Uh, and as he said, you go to dollarshaveclub.com slash overdue. Do it today. That's dollarshave.com. Dollarshaveclub.com slash overdue. Run, don't walk, go. Craig, you know what I like to do when I'm not reading books? What is that? Eat food. I th- <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think I said that a couple of weeks ago. Maybe. I don't remember. <laughs> It's it was it's as good now as it was then. That old chestnut. Do you want to know what one of my favorite places to get food from? Is? I would I would love to. Please tell me. It's the Food Wizards over at Blue Apron. Ooh, I like wizards. Uh, for less than ten dollars a meal, Blue Apron will give you all the ingredients you need. That's everything from like individual milk boxes to sprigs of parsley and cilantro like you don't have to go to the store and buy like a whole thing of cilantro so you can use two leaves of it and throw the rest away which is nice it's a pretty good deal um, every meal can be prepared in 40 minutes or less and they all have between 500 and 700 calories per serving so craig they've got some meals that are on tap for this week what are they tell me about them i am into these korean chicken wings with rice cakes i'm a big fan of rice cakes uh, I, I also, like all the words in that sentence. I know. I'm also <laughs> into the tandoori chicken with coconut basmati, rice, garlic, spinach, and cilantro. Andrew, you know why I'm into it? Because I'm not one of those people for whom cilantro tastes like soap. I am on board with cilantro. Yeah, I'm that. glad that my taste buds are right. <laughs> I feel so bad for people who don't like cilantro because they're wrong. Because they if, have busted taste buds. Ew. And and if I did not eat meat, I could still get down with some spicy fergola with kale and soft egg or some mm, cauliflower mac and cheese. Mm. <laughs> I could get down if, on some cauliflower mac and cheese. If you could get down on some cauliflower mac and cheese, you can get your first two meals for free at blueapron.com slash overdue. That's blueapron.com slash overdue. Uh, Blue Apron, a better, better way to cook. And we're back. Woo, we're back. Uh, tell me about Rebecca. Andrew, last night I dreamed I went. Okay, no, tell me about this instead. La- <laughs> I was trying to quote to you the most, the famous opening line of the book. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. I'm you, sorry. No. We, we can cut that out. That's fine. <laughs> last night I dreamed I went to Manderley again. How'd that go? And apparently not well. <laughs> so Okay. So this book is told in the first person uh, by a young narrator who I think is in her early to mid-20s. Okay. okay. She talks a lot about wishing she were older, but uh, she's not. She's She talks a lot about, you know, whether or not, how appropriate it is to act when you're, you know, just turned 21 or whatever. So that's that becomes more important later on. But it's just worth noting that we are in the head of this character throughout the rest of the book okay so 
the first two chapters of the book, she's dreaming about this place, Manderley, which is this estate that's beautiful and et cetera, except it's not, it's fallen into ruin and nature has made it all over it. That's the actual verb that she uses. Like the <laughs> ivy has made it on the front of the house. It's a fixer upper. Yeah. Uh, Lots of old world charm, good bones. <laughs> but you might, you might come find some mold and you need to flip some stuff and put in mm-hmm. some new HVAC units and stuff. Right, yeah. Uh, can you sump pump? Ew! Uh, Gotta pump all that sump. I hate the word sump pump. <laughs> not say that. Because what is ever. sump? That's the <laughs> that's just, the part I have the most trouble with. I always with. just think it's poop. Like I know it's more than that or less than that. I'm not sure. So you, we find out that this woman um, is married to someone, and they're living in Europe, and they don't live in England anymore, and they used to live at Manderley. That's like what you learn at the top of the book. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then she starts talking. She transitions from actively remembering into a full-on memory of this time that she worked for an obnoxious American named Mrs. Van Hopper. Mm -hmm. Now, Andrew, I'm not sure how much English fiction you've read where all of a sudden the American person is obnoxious, but apparently that trope dates back to the 30s at least, if not longer. Yeah, I mean, I'm just used to the American being the obnoxious one in all of pop culture. (laughs) We've earned it. It's fair, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm going to keep saying the narrator and the woman because the main character of this book does not have a name, at least one that is not explicitly stated in the book. Okay, but is is it an actual person and not like is 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 the narrator actively involved in the story or are we hearing about something that that happened before that? No, it is her story. She about, is okay, she good. is telling us a thing that happened to her. Okay, cool. um, she just never mentions her name. She is referred to after she gets married to this guy as Mrs. De Winter. Mm-hmm. So I will try to use that term, though we will explore how that term becomes complicated. So she's hanging out in Monte Carlo with crappy Mrs. Van Hopper, who's a snob and from America. And right. they meet this redundant, but yeah, I know. Okay, they meet this guy named Maximilian De Winter, who used to live at Manderley, and he's his family owned Manderley, and they say Manderley on every other page. I mm-hmm. don't. At this point, you're beginning to think it's going to be pretty important. Okay, <laughs> the rest of the book, right? Uh, and after about two weeks over breakfast, he says, yo, I think we should get married. And she goes, are are you joking? And he literally says, I'm not one to make jokes at breakfast. I'm serious. So no it's jokes one of at the breakfast. Worst time, one of the worst times of the day to make jokes. Mm-hmm. I would say so. Mm-hmm. So they decide to get married. And here's the thing is she's like an orphan with no family. So she can just like leave, I guess. She doesn't think that she's worth it. Worth getting married to? Yeah, because she doesn't okay. have any prospects and she doesn't have any, you know, she's not accustomed to his walk of life. Yeah, and, and that's the only reason anybody married anybody back then. Yes, according to her anyway. Mm-hmm. And she thinks he's wonderful. Uh, he is old enough to be her dad. MBD. Yeah, fine. he's a widower. He's 42. His wife died in some sort of tragic accident. Uh, her name was Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Just gonna let that hang there for a second, ominously. Like the like the name that's name is the name of the book's name. Yes, yes, you okay. are you are picking up what I'm putting down. Nailed it. Uh huh. This is a really good episode it's so far. Pretty good. We're making all the jokes. It's going <laughs> great. And then we enter into this like kind of like the first 
Fifty Shades book. They're having a lot of sex. No, no, they don't. It's the whole thing where she doesn't get what he sees in her, and she's in this world that is like super rich and fancy, and she feels completely out of place, and he keeps assuring her it's going to be fine. But she's fairly certain it's not that kind yeah, of like yeah, yeah. that woman out of water relationship that is a trope in and of itself. Yeah, that it does. It feels like a very romance novel thing where like the the nobleman notices you of all people, and then he whisks you off your feet, and all of a sudden you're a, you're among the landed gentry, and you don't know what to do to yourself. Yeah, and there's a, I mean, there's a version of that that goes all the way back to you know grim fairy tales like Bluebeard, where and that's you know not great that doesn't work out great for that princess because bluebeard's <laughs> a monster uh but there is a like gets whisked away to the fancy castle and has to you know learn all the ropes and she doesn't you know she's a diamond in the rough kind of thing mm-hmm. so she gets there and she has no idea how it, how it works all the people she meets mrs danvers who's like this maid who loved rebecca and uh Max's or Maxim, excuse Maxim Andrew M I X M A X I M, like a Maxim. It's a good magazine. Yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, Maxim's sister Beatrice, uh, and Maxim's uh, coworker Frank, and a dog named Jasper. It's a good. It's a good crew. There's a servant mm-hmm. named Frith. Super British names hanging out yeah, in Manderley. Definitely. Lo and behold, the West Wing of Manderley is off limits. You can't go there. Not since Rebecca died. It's like Beauty and the Beast. We don't go to the west wing of the house. Okay. You're not allowed to go there. And the whole we go several chapters that's mostly the narrator trying to get up to speed and basically being haunted by Rebecca having lived there first. Which is like, on one hand, it's kind of spooky. On the other hand, it's like, wow, that would be really tough to like slide into a widowed relationship and live in the place where this other person lived and have yeah, I think, her name. Yeah, I think that would be true. I mean, I think that's that can be a problem in any relationship where you're getting into, into it with somebody who's been in a long-term relationship already. Like that's it's almost something like when Susanna and I started dating because I had been in a long-term relationship before and that she hadn't been in one in a while but like there there's always that temptation to try and get back to that like comfort zone that you were in in the relationship before like you will kind of want to rush it a little bit too much. Yes. And it it if if both of you aren't on the same page about it then it can get awkward. Well, and I'm sure that only adds mm-hmm. to like the questions she's already asking about like what am I doing here? What is my role in this dude's life? Yeah, and she talks at length about this being her first love, uh, and so she doesn't even know what this type of relationship is at all. Like, yeah, let alone right. it being one for him. Kind of what you were saying, where it's like he's trying to get up to a certain speed, and she's just kind of flailing in the wind. And he sucks. He is not helping her in the least. <laughs> He's just kind of telling her, you'll be fine. And then he's he just leaves for days at a time to go do stuff. And they sleep in separate Ricky and Lucy beds, which I guess is like a part of the time. But, you know, there's not there's no sense that they are having intimate times together. And there's not a lot of language in the book about why they like each other in the first place, except that he makes her feel valued. 
Uh, he hasn't even said that he loves her. He just got married to her. So he just like makes her feel valued by default, by like noticing that she exists. In yeah, the world. and by saying, okay. you know, come live in my big empty house, I guess. That's not a good reason to do anything. No, that's not great. <laughs> <laughs> so meanwhile, everyone's going, you know, anyone who meets her immediately compares her to Rebecca and immediately wonders, you know, why, or at least from her perspective, they're constantly comparing her to Rebecca and men- bringing up Rebecca to spite her or demean her. And that now may how not- she how is she measuring up in their eyes to Rebecca? Is, is she found wanting or is yeah, it made clear? It's mostly found wanting. <laughs> okay. Uh, she doesn't, she like breaks something. Uh, she breaks like an ornament. And because she's so scared of the maid, she hides it instead. And then uh, the maid blames this other like housekeeper who almost gets into trouble and she has to admit that she did it. And DeWinter Maxim's like, you idiot. Why did you do that? Now we're fighting. <laughs> and all the maids are, and like all the servants are mad at each other. I hate this. Uh, they have a really protracted fight in the middle of the book that's all about that. And he's just a jerk. It's yeah, so this bad. reminds me of like Tenant of Wildfell Hall. And I think, and, and this is, this might be why she, why Dumaria gets lumped in with other romance mm-hmm. authors. It's like, She's in this kind of abusive relationship where the dude, like all problems in the relationship are like her fault. And the dude goes right to blaming her. Yes. And like, why? Oh, it's all your fault that we're fighting now, even though I was an idiot. Yep. Uh huh. And, Ugh, and mean, I dumb. know I'm already, I'm already like, I'm over this de winter guy. This is bumming you out. Um, yeah. She gets on really well with her maid Clarice because Clarice is too new to like have ever known Rebecca. And, like, they just kind of hang out like they're pals, which then demeans Mrs. DeWinter in the eyes of everyone else because she's, like, on par. She's a peer with this maid mm-hmm. in a weird way. Yeah. At one point, Danvers, the evil maid, calls her on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? Well, okay. I don't think you've mentioned this evil maid before. Well, I said Mrs. Danvers earlier. Mrs. Danvers is the one who really loved Rebecca. Right. Like, to the point that the fact that she has to call Mrs. DeWinter... Mrs. DeWinter pisses her off. Mm-hmm. Like, Rebecca was Mrs. DeWinter, okay? You can't replace her. Why are you right. replacing her? I hate you. I'm the evil maid. I'm the evil maid, Mrs. Danvers. Have we met? And at one point, she calls the office where the narrator is, and she asks for Mrs. DeWinter, and the narrator panics and goes, um, she died a year ago? <laughs> <laughs> and Danvers has to be like, I meant you, idiot. It's, that's like that's their whole relationship yeah um and so danvers is kind of antagonizing uh her the whole time and it builds to this head where uh, she can tell that she's like trying to break this new marriage apart she doesn't know how danvers uh but what she does is at one point she catches the narrator sneaking into the west wing finding rebecca's old bedroom where Danvers has perfectly preserved all of her stuff, mm-hmm. and she makes the narrator like touch it all, and like feel it, and look at it, and tells the narrator how Rebecca drowned in her boat, and how Maxim's probably still in love with Rebecca. And I don't know if you can feel my eyes like beating out of my skull right now, no, but this it's is all really, really messed up. This is pretty spoopy. It's it's like the scene in Ace Ventura. Where Ace Ventura what? goes <laughs> to to Einhorn's house 
and his mom still has his room all like done up and is denied that his, that her son is dead except yeah no the dead. only other woman. place in pop culture where this has happened is the ace ventura movie <laughs> i was just surprised this is like that scene in ace ventura where he talks out of his butt <laughs> god i will say that this book is so like resonant and filled with powerful uh, scenes and tropes that it was like calling up all other sorts of like pop culture references for me and okay, I, I don't sure. y- that's kind of what why i wanted to make i literally thought that as i was reading the book and i like i had to hold on to it um, <laughs> so i just thought it was too funny <laughs> so that same day uh maxim's out of the house and at this point uh i'm kind of skipping through some stuff but that's fine the narrator has become friends with frank the guy who works for uh, Maxim and Frank's been like, hey, you really can't tell Maxim how worried you are about this whole Rebecca thing because he's he looks better now that you're married and really don't mess that up for him. Mm-hmm. So she's nervous about talking to her husband about how she's scared about the ghost that she's living with. It's not a real ghost, but basically it's a ghost. It's, um, yeah, it's a it's a yeah, it is kind of a ghost though because her presence is like all over the place. Yes, and you feel like it's inescapable. And the whole time, everyone's like, hey, just. Just tell us what you want. Like, stake your claim to this house. And she keeps being so ineffectual and saying, you know, no, let's just do it how the previous Mrs. DeWinter did it. Like, that's fine. That's what you're all used to. And it just kind of prevents her from fighting this ghost. Right. Yeah. Uh, she ca- she catches Danvers meeting secretly with Rebecca's cousin, Jack Favell. Mm-hmm. And Jack also sucks. He's like a loudmouth cigarette chomping uh <laughs> like drinker who is really brash and kind of smarmy and sweet talks people in a way that's super gross and she doesn't know what they were talking about you can't tell if they were sleeping together or just talking about something secret but maxim hates that guy mm-hmm. and when he finds out that he was there he gets real mad at danvers danvers assumes that the narrator told maxim about it which she did not actually so she decides to prank the narrator, like okay. punk her real bad. They're throwing a big old costume party for Halloween. That's kind of one of the reasons I want to talk about Halloween costumes earlier. Mm-hmm. They used to throw this big costume ball every year at Manderley, and they haven't since Rebecca died. Makes sense, because it was Rebecca's whole thing. So she can't decide what to wear, the narrator, but she knows she wants it to be super good. And Danvers comes in and plays all nice. It's like, hey, you should dress up like that portrait of Maxim's ancestor. You look beautiful. Like, it's be totally, it'll totally work out. Like, you'll just mm-hmm. stun him and you'll look great and it'll make such a great impression on everyone. You should totally do it. Andrew, how do you think this is going to go? I don't think it's going to go great. I feel like we're getting into like carried territory. It's get, yeah. It doesn't go as terrible as I anticipated, but she does order like the special dress from another town and then puts on the wig and looks exactly like the painting and she she tells the drummer of the party band to like announce her and she comes down the stairs and Max freaks out. He's like, "Why did you do that? That's the worst thing ever." And Beatrice, his sister, then tells her that that is the last costume that Rebecca wore before she died. So she knows that Danvers set all this up Mm -hmm. to make uh, the narrator look bad. And so the next day, Maxim's gone off. He's really upset. And there's another creepy scene with Danvers 
where Danvers almost convinces the narrator to like jump out a window like you're ruining Jeez. everything like uh, what does she hope to gain by this like rebecca's already dead yes you're not gonna bring rebecca back by sacrificing another life to your your creepy eldritch terror god or whatever it is that you're doing <laughs> Well, I don't think it's an if if by Eldritch Terror God you mean love for Rebecca, because there, yeah, there are that. strong implications that Danvers was is actually like sexually and and fully on in love with Rebecca. Okay, like, I mean, so, so far that makes sense. <laughs> that makes a little more sense than Yogsagoth, but yeah. you know, the line is very thin. It's yeah, it's you got to make a call on a case by case basis. Uh, so she doesn't kill herself because. A boat like crashes in the cove where they used to keep Rebecca's boat. And it's like a big steamer ship that like runs aground or something. And in the process of uh like figuring like Maxim runs off to go take care of the, the crew and all this stuff. It's like a whole big town affair. And they find when they go under to see if they can dislodge this boat, they find Rebecca's boat. And there's a oh, body no. in it in the cabin. Is it Rebecca's? So we're going. Or did into, somebody plant a body there? Oh no! Gonna like get into this. some. You are freaking out right now. I'm spooked. We're gonna get into some spoiler territory. If you really don't want to know what happens, turn back. I guess yeah, I don't spoopy, know. Spoopy spoilers. Spoopy spoilers. So the story originally was that Rebecca died in a boat crash, and m- several months later, Maxim found like was called to identify a body. That mm-hmm. seems crazy but everyone bought the story. Like, there yeah. was a body without a head or arms in the ocean, and he said, yeah, that's her, and then Rebecca didn't on. have a head or arms, right? <laughs> she was the, the most beautiful mannequin that ever lived. <laughs> uh, I saw her at the coals, and I fell in love. <laughs> so... They find this body, and Maxim starts freaking out. And uh, the narrator's like, what? I mean, I know this is probably upsetting. There was a person in that boat with her, and clearly her body like slipped out of the boat and floated away. <laughs> it's like, that's way too convenient and doesn't make any sense. I must tell you the truth. I killed her. Neat. Yeah. So Neat admission. And then he goes on a rant about how she was a super loose woman who slept with everyone and was throwing it in his face. And now she'd gotten pregnant and was gonna uh, raise someone else's kid as his to like taunt the whole operation. Mm-hmm. And now he, this is the only account of her that way. It's worth noting that uh, there's certainly other characters in the book who talk about sleeping with her or talk about her sleeping around. But Max is the only one who's like, yo, that lady was evil, and I hated her forever. It's, but it sounds like everybody else is totally enthralled by Rebecca. Yes. Like, certainly the evil maid has some kind of weird relationship with her. And her cousin Jack, who slept with her and probably thinks the baby that may or may not have existed was his. Um, right. It sounds like like the dividing line in what you think of Rebecca is like whether she was having an extramarital affair with you or not. Precisely. Now, what do you think the narrator's response to this news is, Andrew? Are you crazy? No. She's totally on board. Is she on board with it? Oh, no. So she decides that she's going to back Maxim all the way. 
Because, listen to this, she's been fighting the ghost of Rebecca all this time, and she finds out that the man she loved tried to off Rebecca. He's the only other person in this house who hates Rebecca as much as she does. (laughs) I know. (laughs) So, So she just makes the moral choice that instead of, like, going against him, she's on board. Okay. She's with him. It's real rough. Now, the only other, there's like, there's a simpleton who lives down by the cove named Ben, who at one point intimated that Rebecca was mean to him. That's another account of Rebecca sucking, but that's like really it. Just so it's you hard know. To, it's hard to take Simple Ben totally seriously as a character. Yeah. That's all we know about it. There's a weird, there's a whole bunch of like of the times lingo where he is described as having like eyes like an idiot. And it's like clearly he is handicapped. And uh, in the 30s, I guess you could just call someone like that whatever you wanted. It's kind of adulpated. Yeah. <laughs> it's not okay. Uh, so then it becomes like a whodunit. And they go through a whole bunch of like clue work. Jack Favell shows up and starts accusing. Maxim, Jack Favel. Jack uh, of, accusing Maxim of, of wrongdoing, and the magistrate shows up, and he's trying to help out Max, and he doesn't like that Jack's a drunk idiot. Um, well, who would? I know. <laughs> so they, they narrow it down to this doctor that Rebecca had an appointment to see the day before she died, and they go visit him, and he tells them... So, so the inquest shows that Rebecca killed herself rather than died at sea. That's mm-hmm. that's the official word in the papers, and Jack's out to prove that Max actually killed her. Okay. The meeting with the doctor confirms that she, quote-unquote, had a motive. She thought she was pregnant, found out she had terminal cancer, and didn't want to live that way, so she drowned herself. Okay. What the implication is in the story is that she found out she had terminal cancer and then goaded Maxim, whom she hated, into killing her, which is like a whole separate way to die. I mean, it's more tragic either way, though, right? Yeah, but she like did it as one big like, I'm still in charge of you. I'm going to goad you into shooting me kind of. Mm-hmm. That's that's the story that gets told. So is that, is that like what does the book present as the truth or does it like leave you to figure that out for yourself? That's the strongest truth, though it is not explicitly ever stated as such. Which one though? Which version? Oh, the one where she definitely had cancer, not a baby in her belly. And mm-hmm. she told him that it was a baby so that he would shoot her. Okay. That's the best guess you have. Okay. And then the book abruptly ends after they race back to Manderley in their car after meeting this doctor because Maxim has a bad feeling about things. Um, And they pull up after the narrator has a bad dream where she kind of turns into Rebecca and Manderley's on fire. End of the book. Boom. Jeez. That's it. Because it seems like the the evil maid would have had a problem with Maxim killing Rebecca. Also, like yes, so the she news... would not have been happy to continue sh- to continue serving this family. Yeah, so Jack hears that news and clearly calls Danvers. They get word that Danvers' evil maid has left the estate and gone off into the woods. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what clues Maxim that something might be up, um, which is why he races home. Which is sad because I think Jasper the dog was in that house. I don't know. Yeah, you, I don't know I mean, for you certain. You just threw that dog threat out there, and I don't think there's been more dog talk. She lately. hangs out with the dog for a while. 
Like, that's most of what Jasper's up to. Mm-hmm. He does cause some hijinks down at the cove where, like, they see where Rebecca's boat was and Maxim gets all uncomfortable because the dog yeah. ran, you know. But he's, like, a pleasant character in the book. So this, this, is, it, this is interesting as a ghost story because in no way is a spectral, like, otherworldly force influencing events at all. Like, the ghost of Rebecca is the memory of Rebecca and the relationships that she had with other people in the in the book, right? Yes, and the the only other, but even even the, like despite that, she's still pretty much she still pretty much haunts everybody. Yeah, oh yeah, she haunts every conversation. She haunts every interaction between people in this book. Uh, more than once, the main character uses words like demon and haunting to describe her or specter. Yeah. Um, she's also associated with the sea. So the whole west wing of the house kind of faces the sea and it's this incessant noise. And Danvers at one point says that the reason that they shut up the west wing is that uh, he, he couldn't take that sound anymore. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't handle it. So instead they're on the east wing and the main character's uh, like window looks out on this walled rose garden where she's like, you know, I guess. Like I've got, I've been in a like a beach house before. Moving from one end of the beach house to the other is not enough to not hear the ocean. <laughs> they I don't have know how long of... this house is. I think it's a pretty big house. <laughs> it's the kind of house where everyone in the county like petitions to have a party. That's how yeah, big it is, right? So it, it so is like this ghost story, right? But it's also, it, I think that's why it was a bestseller in its time because it was this romantic gothic thriller story. And yet it's got this undercurrent of uh, gender critique and social critique that I think is what's made it last longer than just being like a pulpy Jane Eyre. Can you, I mean, is there anything else about that aspect of the book that you haven't talked about yet? And just like the straight plot synopsis? The f- I think it's it's wrapped up in how the two De Winter, how the two wives are almost two halves of the same coin and that yeah. neither of them are can be looked at as the like the quote-unquote correct path like the author the author's not making a moral judgment on either character i don't think um i think they're both being presented as problematic i did not okay so i will confess i did not realize that the main character did not have a name until i finished reading the book Mm-hmm. And I read an awesome afterword in this edition by Sally Bowman. Uh, and when I read, I was like, oh my, it was like someone, it's like the end of the sixth sense. Like everything made sense. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like, like it's one of those books. And I think the handmaid's tale did this for me actually, yeah. where you, you don't notice that you don't know what the character is named until you try to think of what the character's name was. And then you go back and realize, Oh, Hey, yeah, totally. Like maybe, maybe arguably this is the character's name, but actually there's not one given in the no. text. And it's this really powerful statement to have this character who is defined only by this other person, by this other person and by her husband who doesn't even treat her very well and is only bringing her there. It seems to fill the guilt and distract from the fact that he killed his previous wife who you know he acted out of jealousy and adult and you know cuckolded rage which is not excusable but also the book kind of shows her as a rebellious figure who didn't know what else to do in that situation like she was probably a bad person but we don't actually meet her 
in a real mm-hmm. sense. So we can't even make that call for sure. So the kind of limitations on who women were at that time, you know, we've encountered this in other books before. It's just kind of interesting to to see it so explicitly woven into a romantic thriller, if that yeah. way, you know. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was interesting that you, like, you seem to subscribe to the theory that she had cancer, she told Maxim, so yes. Maxim would kill her. Whereas, like, we were, you were talking on Twitter with some people, including a friend of the show, Margaret H. Willison. And she was saying that Rebecca is basically, and here's spoilers for Gone Girl, I guess. But, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, she was saying that Rebecca is basically Gone Girl, except what if Amy had actually killed herself instead of faking her own death? Yeah, that, but that seems to jive with with my reading of what happened. Well, that, that she she used. I guess she killed herself in so far as she incited murderous rage in somebody else. Yeah, it, right? like it was okay. a, it was a it was a willful act to be shot by her husband that she loathed. Okay, uh, which it's is really still too bad that up. she could count on her husband to shoot her. <laughs> like it's reliable enough that. That was the gambit that she was willing to make. <laughs> and there's like the what I really liked about the the afterword that Sally Bowman wrote is it talked about how at the time there's a reading of this book that is like, oh, the protagonist got to live with her husband for the rest of their days. They're kind of exiled in Europe and maybe it's not the best marriage, but they made it and he defeated the evil woman and they get to be together. And it's not mm-hmm. perfect, but it's not tragic, right? Yeah. Even though the ending is kind of abrupt and grim. Uh, and yet there's this more subversive take on it where is, Re- like, yes, Rebecca, ex- you know, exhibited control over all these people and manipulated the situation. But none of the people she manipulated seemed to be very cool either. Ultimately, who? why did she even become that way? And why... There's really no explanation for why they got married in the first place. The first, Rebecca and Maxim. From yeah, I mean, I, there there I doesn't remember. it doesn't seem like there's a much of an explanation for why the second Mrs. De Winter. And That's Maxim also true. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I guess in in then times, you just got married because a man of of marriageable age like asks you first. Yes, and you didn't have a good reason to say no. I don't know. Yeah. That's no, that that's seems mis- reasonable. That's misreading the the trope, but yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you to like build on a conversation we were having in a previous Booktober show. Sure, you asked me like if I believed in ghosts at all. Mm-hmm. This book sort of makes me wonder like what do you what is a ghost for you like what what meets the criteria for being a ghost because in this one the ghost is just somebody's somebody's memory. Interesting. That's a good point. And like that stuff, like in real life, like somebody can somebody can die and like totally change the course of somebody else's life. And you aren't being haunted in that like nobody is picking you up off the ground and having like a Beetlejuice dance party with you. (laughs) But that person like that person and specifically that person's death is still still leaving a, a mark that can't be attributed to anything else you know yeah that's that's a really good point and some of that isn't always negative right yeah like, right you like said maybe that you, maybe you always li- li- live life to the fullest now yeah there's like a carpet made thing you that appreciate kinda happens. your own mortality yeah there's I, I don't know why you said that and literally the first thing i thought about was that when i was still acting uh i kind of stopped after college but when i was still performing um 
I would anytime I went on before a show, I would think about my grandmother. And she passed, I think, when I was in eighth grade. So it was before I even really like got interested in theater. And there was just this sense of like, uh, you are. I was wishing that the person I knew knew the person I'd become. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's it's not a ghost, right? It's not like I'm talking. To, I'm not like seeing uh, Obi Wan next to me and being like, "Hey, Obi Wan, check out the stuff I'm doing." Um, <laughs> Also, my grandma. Also, my grandma is Obi Wan. <laughs> yeah, you just you looked up and you saw a blue, like shining specter of your grandma, like nodding sagely at you. And then Hayden Christensen was there. It was weird. Yeah. Um, but it, it's more just I was interacting with the memory of a person. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a a less perhaps overtly spooky or certainly less supernatural reading on what a ghost is. But I kind of like that, Andrew. I kind of yeah. like that a lot. Um, yeah, that's, that seems to be what the book is going for. And that's that's like th- thematically how it fits into the Spooktober pantheon. Like I I really like the popular, the, the the ghost and popular imagination where you have like different ghosts that do different things. Like the yes. poltergeist I think is the classic example where it's just the ghost that wants to troll you all the time and have a good time. <laughs> okay. But yeah, I think the ghosts that we actually wrestle with in the real world. And, e- and even if you do like believe in ghosts like traditionally defined ghosts i still think that's more about like what you bring with you into a room like we we talked we talked last episode i think or maybe the one before Uh i don't remember uh about how i like i don't i think that there's a rational explanation for pretty much any anything that you could attribute to a ghost sure but i think that you like people who do believe in ghosts they they make those ghosts happen by by preferring to attribute that stuff to ghosts rather than to or like be being more susceptible to like being scared that way and like letting their minds run away with things in that way does that make sense at all yeah no it's it's about what you it's what you are envisioning Mm -hmm. in those places and that kind of ties to a real quick thing i want to say i really liked about this book before i realized how problematic the narrator was once it took the (laughs) kind of turn into wow you're you suck too Um, (laughs) i really liked being in her head she does a lot of daydreaming and supposing and envisioning of kind of alternate scenes especially when she's dealing with all the people who are asking her why the heck she isn't rebecca basically Mm -hmm. and she keeps being in her in her head she'll go you know I wonder what would happen if I said this and then this would happen and then this would happen. And it just seems really human. And depending on how books are written, you don't always kind of get into a character's head like that. Mm -hmm. Usually you get into a character's head and they are thinking about what is literally happening. You don't often get to suppose with a character for very long. Uh, And it's just the style kind of clicked. But that also seems to jive with how much power such a mind could lend to like a dead person Mm -hmm. right if 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 they can envision alternate conversations between people they don't like over tea then they can certainly lend inordinate supernatural power to a dead wife right oh and i did miss uh, i wanted to respond to margaret margaret's comments on twitter about thinking that maxim is the worst because he does his suggestion for the narrator's halloween costume andrew Alice in Wonderland. Okay. Okay, man old enough to be her father. You're suggesting Alice in Wonderland? You're the grossest. Yeah, he's gross. That That's sounds gross. pretty gross. Uh, 
Graham also shared. Graham also shared on Let's Twitter. Say Graham. Graham. That uh, he liked Rebecca, but it's kind of sad that it's the only Hitchcock film to win Best Picture. Uh, and Michael said that he liked the Hitchcock film as well, but had not read the book and probably wouldn't. I just want to share with you one deviation from the book that the film had to make that due to the Hollywood production code, uh, Max could not have been depicted as murdering his wife because according to the code, he would have had to have been explicitly punished for it. Oh, because you couldn't just have somebody get away with murder yes. back in old-timey Hollywood days. So to keep the ending, Hitchcock changed it so that he like accidentally shoved her down and then she died. Which completely changes the character. Yeah, I have not I seen know. the film, so I don't know what that does. He also, Hitchcock, removed a lot of the backstory of Danvers, so she's even spookier in the film. Yeah, like... Which I think is great. So tit for tat on that one, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh I think that's it, Andrew. I think we should probably wrap up. But this cool. is this is a pretty good book, and if you don't mind that I spoiled it and you're still listening, then you should go read it for yourself. Uh, it's. I mean, I assume like most books that we spoil, like the and the the ones that we spoil and that we like, that it's the reading it is as fun as what happens in it. Yeah, yeah. I think this is definitely a, a a book that bears a reread at some point. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, if we missed anything that you think we should have talked about, you should reach out to us on social media. You should hit us up on Facebook.com slash OverduePod or Twitter.com slash OverduePod. I want to thank a whole host of people who reached out to us in the past week or so. Uh, Melissa, Sam, Joel, all of which did it on Facebook. Uh, Eric, Ray, Albie, Julie, Amanda, Joshua, Cara, Josh, Sean, Ricey, Graham, Amanda, Boyvin, Alex Boyvin, uh, the Epilogue Podcast, <laughs> Scott, Molly, uh, Talon, J. Deep, uh, Liz, Kristen, Terry, Dana, Joshua, Patrick, Leslie, Books of Park Place, Sydney, Anthony, and Trisabella. And oh, those are iTunes reviews. Never mind. I got on a roll. All those people hit us up on uh, Twitter and thank you so much. You can also write into us at overduepod at gmail.com. Sydney actually wrote in to say that she's from Nebraska and is listening to the show. And that was like a thing, 100 episodes, I guess, where we were in a fight with Nebraska. I don't really remember. I'm, I'm willing to keep the feud going. <laughs> Like, oh, Nebraska. I'm shaking my fist. You can't see it, but I am. <laughs> Andrew, if people want to learn more about the show, where should they go? Uh, they can go to OverduePodcast.com. Up there we have links to iTunes, Stitcher, RSS, all places that you can subscribe to the show and get new episodes as soon as they drop every Monday. Um, you can find a link to our podcast host, Spreaker. Thank you very much to them for hosting the show. Uh, you can find Amazon links to the books that we have read that we are going to read. You can find a link to our Patreon page, which is a way that you can directly support us financially. And um, you can also find a link to the HeadGum homepage. HeadGum is our podcast network, and we are happy to be a member of their of their ever-growing stable of shows. Yeah, if you saw the news that Netflix might revive Gilmore Girls, you may be keen to go check out the Gilmore Guys podcast. Yes, there's a couple of guys who watch the Gilmore Girls. One is a fan, one is a newbie, and hijinks ensue. <laughs> <laughs> they drink a lot of coffee, I guess. Yeah, just I like know. the show. I don't mm-hmm. know. Uh, okay, so next week is we're not. It's not officially Spooktober anymore, but I've started Weathering Heights, and there are some spooky elements. So it might be a good way to like transition from Spooktober back to regular books. Yeah, and we certainly didn't talk as much this week about a lot of the comparisons explicitly comparisons between uh rebecca and jane Eyre. so if you have right that's kind of relevant to weathering heights so if you do have thoughts on that please write in and maybe we'll talk about it on the show Mm -hmm. 
And then uh, we're also going to be putting out October's bonus episode. We keep like skewing a little bit late on yeah, those, which is fine. which is our bad, but whatever. Um, it's going to be a, it's going to be a way to close out Spooktober for for Patreon donors, and then the rest of you will get it, I guess, slightly after Halloween at the beginning of November. Yeah, it'll what's be good, what's the only thing scarier than Halloween is the ghost of Halloween past. <laughs> so <laughs> sounds think- good to me. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for listening, everybody. We we love getting the feedback, good and bad, and emails and all all the stuff that you send us. Um, we will be back next Monday, and until then, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.